Insecure, the security podcast, brought to you by the Center for Global Security Challenges. See it, say it, secure it. I am Marine Guéguin, a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds. And I'm Dr. Harry Swinhoe, an early career researcher at the University of Leeds. Together, we will be discussing security in an increasingly insecure world. This podcast aims at bringing together postgraduate researchers, early career researchers and more established academics to discuss their research and explore the six core themes of the Centre for Global Security Challenges. For this second episode, we will be discussing the future of terrorism studies and research. And today we would like to welcome Dr. Gordon Club and Mr. Mohamed Didarul Islam. Welcome, Gordon and Didar. Dr. Gordon Club is an Associate Professor in Terrorism at the University of Leeds and a Research Fellow at the German Institute for Radicalization and Deradicalization Studies. He also sits on the Editorial Board for the International Centre for Counterterrorism and the Studies in Conflict and Terrorism Journal. Dr. Club's research focuses on deradicalization and the reintegration of former combatants, and he has published a number of works on these topics, including a recent book, Selling Deradicalization, Managing the Media Framing of Countering Violent Extremism. Dr. Gordon Club is also my former PhD supervisor and Marine's current PhD supervisor. Mr. Mohammed Didarul Islam is a PhD student at the University of Leeds and an assistant professor at the University of Dakar, and his thesis examines the framing of counter-violent extremism policy, particularly in the context of Bangladesh. He has written extensively on this and other topics, including a recent article on the relocation of Rohingya refugees from mainland Bangladesh to the island of Basanchar. Gordon Didar, again, we are very pleased to have you here with us today. Thank you for coming. Before delving into the topic of the future of terrorism research and studies, we would like to ask you a question that will remain throughout our episodes, and we intend to ask every speaker. So how secure or insecure is the world today in relation to terrorism? Gordon, would you like to start and then Didar? Yeah, well, thanks very much for um, having me. And it's, yes, it's really great to see this initiative. Uh, it's, it's obviously been very successful. So thanks for the invitation. And in terms of the question, I, I, and I was thinking about this, I think that the, the world has become more insecure in some ways. It's a difficult question because obviously you have to, have to qualify it. I think if we look at in terms of terrorism, in terms of terrorist groups, we associate in terms of studies and typical movements. We've, we've seen a decline uh, in their activity and operational abilities in the last five to seven years uh, in uh, the West, for what I'm a better word, the West. And we see that that decline in terrorism threat then coming alongside this other type of uh, insecurity that I guess we could, within the parlance of terrorism studies, attribute to right-wing violent extremism. And right-wing violent extremism has uh, operates on a different level of threat in, in so far as it's not necessarily terrorism. It can be terrorism, but I don't think the, the real insecurity comes from the terroristic threat. The threat comes from the, the capture of the state, essentially, and destabilisation of and challenge of norms uh, in uh, liberal democratic values. So in that sense, I think we've become, we're talking about in terms of the West, that it's become more secure in some ways as, as we've, we've got to grips with the, the kind of the, the effects of globalisation and, and of the Islamist movement. The states have got to grips with that and that, that threat has declined. But then this new threat has emerged, which I think is even more uh, dangerous because 
you've got a large part of the population who don't see it as a threat. They, they, they don't see it as a security threat. So I think that that would be my general thoughts, once again, uh, in terms of that insecurity, security within the context of terrorism. But that's me just talking about in terms of the, the Western context. I think beyond that, that is, is a different matter. But just to simplify it, I thought I would focus on that point there. Thank you. Dida, do you want to answer that question? What do you think? Yeah, thank you, both of you. Thank you, CGSC, for having me here. I have basically mixed understanding on whether the world is more secure in terms of more. In one sense, you see, after the fall of formal fall of ISIS or formal fall of Al-Qaeda, in one sense, the threat of Islamist militancy around the world has been reduced significantly. That's true. But on the other hand, security threat from the far right has been escalated at a tremendous rate. For example, you see last year what happened in the Capitol Hill and uh, around the Western world. Once again, if you consider some case-specific situations in some African countries, the threat of terrorism is still high. The emergence of new emergence of Taliban in Afghanistan, the threat of extremism is still very high over there, and there is a high chance of making foreign fighters discourse once again in public sphere uh, again. So in different contexts, I, uh, I would also say the threat of terrorism is still persistent, and uh, it's not more secure than previous time. Thank you. So to begin our discussion, we would like to start with a question coming from our audience, actually, which is very relevant to our topic today. So what are the coming trends in terrorism research? And is it fair to still consider terrorism as the biggest threat? You kind of touch upon already on that. And is terrorism still a global threat or a country-based threat? I'll go with the, the, the first one, coming trends in terrorism research, because that is it's an interesting one. In terms of thinking of terrorism research as, as a field or as an area for studies, it's an interesting topic. And this is one of the, the topics that, you know, whenever people start a PhD or start research in terrorism studies, it's probably something you come across, at least in the, when I started my PhD. And it was the, the two of the pieces of work was Andrew Silk's evaluation of the state of the field, and then you had the, the CTS uh, also with a very strong intervention on, on that debate uh, as well. And, and the general message there was that, that terrorism research was previously, it was not the most rigorous and it was all these, these different problems associated with it. And, and from then there was this uh, drive to improve terrorism research in, in terms of the, the rigour, for want of a better word. But also, I guess the CTS was covering those other limitations of terrorism studies. Now, has that improved? I mean, th- there is that debate that Mark Sageman came in and basically just said, no, it's not, it's still as bad as ever. And then there's this debate going on that, well, is that actually the case? I'm more that camp that, that terrorism research has improved in terms of the methods. We start to see a greater variety of studies using methods. You see fewer of these studies that are based on no methods at all. It's, it's becoming more more sophisticated methodologically, more pluralistic, as I said, not only because of um, critical terrorism studies, which had played an important role in that, but also, I think, within the... the, the um, even if you look at the CTS critic, criticisms of terrorism studies field, that I don't think that many of that is, is relevant anymore. I mean, I think this idea of the, the critique of the uh, terrorism studies approach to causality, for example, has been addressed, I feel. Uh, uh, terrorism studies has embraced causal complexity. We see that in the different ways, the, the models that, that are used. Uh, Start, for example, in Maryland, 
amazing research there. The other trends is the shift towards extremism, looking at extremism. I would argue that then links to the the next question that terrorism perhaps isn't the biggest threat in in the Western world. And so terrorism studies kind of survives, I guess, by this focus on extremism, violent extremism, and its different manifestations and its counter-extremism. But whether that's terrorism studies or not is a good, good question, because if you strip out all that, then ter- do we do terrorism studies now, really? So that has kind of given the, the field of terrorism studies a kind of shot of life, because that, that's what a lot of research looks at now. And, and I would be quite positive in, in terms of the trends that we see the shift to looking at cyberspace, Facebook, social media, freedom of speech. These debates are real interest. But I think it's still relevant in terms of it's not necessarily the threat, but in terms of counter-terrorism, counter-violent extremism. Yes, because it's been embedded within the United Nations resolutions how to deal with foreign fighters. So we see these practices now, CVE practices, once again, is it terrorism studies or not? We see CVE practices then being diffused globally. And so this uh, it might not necessarily be a global threat, but it's a global solution in, in that way. The way Gordon just uh, made a chronological discussion, it was fantastic. Because uh, from a generic terrorism studies, then we got critical terrorism studies. Now uh, there is a shift towards CV sort of things. Sometimes we see CV disengagement or de-radicalization in different countries. The global proliferation of this sort of practices was aided by the resolution from the UN back in 2006. And there are some countries like United Kingdom who just promoted such uh, intervention policies and there are uh, more than 60 countries those who are practicing cv currently in different names maybe for the academics sometimes i say i'm sorry for saying that academics love crisis when some crisis happens we see some crisis for example in afghanistan or crisis in ukraine so it provokes academics to shed light on this particular issue and if you just ask me well, what is the, the future trend, I would certainly say future trend is to consider CVE. At the same time, there has been a growing literature on right-wing extremism, which was absent uh, 10 years back. So you see in academic scholarly articles that have been talking, for example, Ryan Scrivens uh, talking on radical right, right-wing extremism, etc. Is terrorism still a global threat or country-based threat? Terrorism has always been a transnational thing. For example, when terrorism escalated in Middle East, the wave of that terrorism, particular terrorism, will reach to uh, South Asian countries, for example. It will reach to United States. So I, I don't think it's a country-based. Yes, uh, sometimes it originates from a country. Country-specific uh, triggering factors are over there, but still... There is a transnational nature of, of such terrorism, I would say. Thank you. I was reflecting on this in terms of the future trends in terrorism research. And one of the things I noticed in the work I'm doing is that, that you're finding, the context here is that, that this Marx-Hageman criticism and critical terrorism studies criticism that the field is too close to the state, right? Uh, so CTS says oh, it's too close to the state, that's problematic. And Marx-Hageman says we're not close enough. We need to get more access to intelligence. That that was one of his original critiques of the field, right? And I, I wonder if that is now changing 
And this is a trend that's something that we need to consider in the future. And what I noticed was in two of the different projects I'm working on, there's two organisations, not government, private sector, that soft private sector organisations that work in the CBE space who are doing this topic. And they're so far ahead. Uh, and, and for example, Dider, you would remember this probably. This was in our workshop where we, we were wanting to know a question, formers, do we know if formers are credible? Are they successful? And Ross Frenet, the director, the CEO of Moonshot, said, oh, yeah, we've got that data, thousands and thousands of that data, right? And then there's this other organisation that's been doing the research on stuff that we as academics are doing. They've been doing it four years using nudge theory, behavioural sciences and stuff like that, right? And so what I find interesting is we're having essentially what our private organisations or NGOs doing research that we as academics can't really do or it takes us so long to do. And it got me thinking, are we going to lose our edge here in terms of what we contribute to? And I think this incentivizes us to work with NGOs more and private sector organisations more. But how do we then get access to that data? Because, yeah, it struck me that this is new. When did we have organisations who... Organisations who work with Facebook, you know, global organisations, yeah. they have all this data, sophisticated data. We as academics, we have no chance of getting that. So, yeah, that was just something as a future trend in terms of research field. That, that was something that uh, kind of uh, jumped out at me in the last week. I, uh, I will also echo Gordon here. For example, between 2017 to 2021, USAID funded a project on youth leadership which is linked to CV in Bangladesh. And a PhD was awarded at New York University to Dr. Peter Vining on this specific issue where they use con- randomized control trial. And they have, they have really sophisticated data and they could do it because they have money. So when such organization, they are coming up with some research, then we, we need to mention, we the academics need to mention, we shouldn't miss the bus. Thank you. Fascinating. One question is actually linked to your book, Gordon. So you published your co-edited book, uh, Terrorism and Political Violence in 2015, which discussed the key debates within terrorism studies as they stood in 2015. If you were publishing that book today, what would you include and how do you think those debates have evolved in the last seven years? when we did uh, Terrorism and Political Violence, we wanted to bring those critical debates with the traditional debates and to focus it around yeah, debates, essentially, because I feel like at that time, textbooks, terrorism studies were some of them awful, to be honest. And obviously, there were quite a few exceptions that came out just around then and just afterwards. I mean, was it Lee Jarvis's one? I was always a big fan of that one. So, yeah, to answer the question, I think I would just copy and paste what Diego Muro uh, and uh, St. Andrew's uh, lot are doing because that, that is a, a solid book. It actually looks very much like my module. The only thing I, I can, at the time, what we tried to do differently was to get the current debates. And I, I guess that contemporary book doesn't necessarily do that. I mean, de-radicalisations don't think it's a contemporary debate as it was in 2014. But obviously we edited books, textbooks, you know, it's d- difficult to do that. But yeah, no, I think that that is the perfect book. It gets all these the contemporary debates. But it does kind of leave this question open of, 
because it looks at terrorism studies, but it doesn't really look at violent extremism or extremism, which coming back to that shift that we're talking about now. And so it kind of just leaves that a little bit. I don't know how I would do that as a book. Is that a separate book? I mean, is that like Richard Jackson's and uh, it all? Is that, is that like their book? So, I mean, I, I'm really not sure. I mean, Sage did ask me to, and I just like, nah, I'm not doing it again. But I think the question is, does terrorism studies fully merge in with these other studies, or is that separate? That I'm not sure about that because I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Sometimes, and we'll talk about this later on. Sometimes I wonder if we do need to go back to terrorism studies. Maybe violent extremism is the problem, and maybe we do need to re-embrace that terrible definition of terrorism because it's better than that definition of violent extremism. So actually, yeah, no, you know what? I would do that. If I were to do it again, I would have those conversations together. The conversation's not CTS and traditional, that's done. The, the new debate is terror studies or a CVE. It's not the new, but it's our new potential one that you could probably wind a book out of. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, question I wanted to follow up with before we move on is reflecting on events over the last few years, given the coronavirus pandemic, the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, should both terrorism scholars and policymakers perhaps reevaluate the relative risk of terrorism in Western contexts and the importance of terrorism research relative to research into other potential security risks? As terrorism scholars, should we maybe be, I don't know, a little more humble about our own importance? It's a real good question. Let's take it bottom up, I guess. As, as a researcher, I mean, I know that I'm not, my research is not the most important in the world. You know what I mean? And it's just like, I'm fine with that. It's just something that interests me. I'm not expecting everyone else to kind of get on board and say it's the most important thing ever. You basically just do the work and then, and that's it. But then therein lies the problem that, that it's not necessarily we as academics, I think it's we as, let's call it the terrorism industry, you know, that we were talking about in, my, in the Fudgy module. That is it's the problem. There's a, a market, there's an interest there for it as well. And so you, you can't escape that. I know CTS have, have hold a lot of store in what we as academics can do. I, I'm completely cynical of that. I don't think we as academics can do much. I don't think that's a problem. I, I think it's that's we can agree, disagree with that if anyone has, thinks otherwise. But I think beyond that, I'm not sure policymakers do. I mean, okay, all right, think about terrorism budget, the prevent budget. Prevent budget's nothing. It's dropping the ocean, basically, when you think of it. I guess in, in terms of the effect, it is bad. But in terms of if the question's about the relative risk of terrorism, I'm not sure uh, if in terms do, does the government still play that up anymore? Is that question a bit dated in the sense that, yeah, if you ask this question five, ten years ago, it's like, yeah, the government overplays terrorism. No, do we? Do we really talk about it as much? If anything, it's that, that conversation about extremisms and, and values and things like that. We've, if anything, we've kind of moved away from terrorism and overplaying these other risks of wokeness, so on and so forth. And that is a, a manifestation of that extremism that then that radicalization that this this whole idea that if we talk about radicalization it's a slippery slope we move away from terrorism political violence to to ideas we don't like right and we're seeing that and i think that is that's the concern here i think terrorism isn't much of a risk relatively different what was relatively less i'd say now and i think people kind of reflect that a little bit but i wouldn't necessarily say all right terrorism people in the uk let's cut the budget we're we're all clear to go here you know i mean i I, (laughs) No, clearly yes. Terrorism isn't the most important thing here, but is extremism. 
important. And once again, I'm contradicting myself here because I see it as a problem. But I'll hand over to Didar while I try to reconcile my contra- internal contradictions. Yeah, no, that's quite all right. Didar, what are your thoughts? I don't know if there's a similar conversation to be had about the Bangladeshi context and the relative importance of terrorism and other security threats in Bangladesh. In answering the question, back home in Bangladesh, there was an incident in 2016 that was holy artisan incident where 17 foreign nationals were uh, slaughtered in a cafe. So that incident was in Bangladesh compared to 9-11 incident in the U.S. So after that, our policymakers, basically the city policymakers, city practitioners, those who have spoken to in my field work, they have said that after that, we thought what we are missing, what we are missing, our own people, very own people, they are killing ourselves, they are killing uh, the foreign people, and Bangladesh was struggling with the image crisis. So after that, they came up with this uh, form of CV, that means awareness program, different prevent, uh, preventative interventions, later on some DDAT programs, etc. They are still, still in framing process. So in Bangladesh, terrorism is still a threat. In, terroriz- in terms of terrorism, we understand in Bangladesh, the policymakers understand basically violent extremism of Islamist extremism, not the left-wing extremism that was a a crisis back in 70s or 80s. Uh, So specifically, Islamist extremism is still a serious threat in Bangladesh, according to the uh, policymakers. They're trying to bridge the academics over there as well. But my understanding is there is a gulf of difference between academics' understanding of a fact and the policymakers' understanding of a fact, even though they incorporate them, their ideas. But at the end of the day, policymakers, they're either field bureaucrats, that means police, or the secretaries. So they themselves, what they think right, they tend to do according to their own way. Sometimes they, I'm, I'm not saying exclusively, but I'm saying inclusively. This is the uh, general practice. This norm has been practiced in different countries as well. So uh, I think in terms of terrorism research and uh, the bridging between academia and policymakers, we should address more attention uh, to that point. Otherwise, still we'll be publishing more and more papers. The policymakers won't even dare to see or read so we we need to bridge the gap, and as a non-pessimist, I'm non-pessimist. So uh, I see hope and light in near future that this gap will be reduced significantly. So you're slightly more optimistic in terms of the ability of academics influence or have a conversation with policymakers. And for that, I I would just mention one thing: academic papers on terrorism. This should be more precise. So. If we can, we can develop some sort of segments in academic journals as well uh, for a specific policy appraisals or policy brief. That that might help uh, to bridge the gap, I think. Incorporating the, some policymakers from different contexts, that would help. Maybe, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm still uh, learning. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wholly cynical about the prospect of impact and trying to achieve impact. It's, it's a tricky one there. I mean, obviously, there's this debate that it's not 
impact policy influence uh, is not necessarily dependent on research, it's dependent on policy interests and, and the policy trends at the moment. And, and that shapes what gets picked up. And this is why I, I, I kind of, I wonder if we're, we're not powerless to influence policy, but yeah, I, I don't think it's an easy thing to do. So I think that coming back to, I think that then shapes the kind of the, the, the security landscape, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, over the, the last 10 years, we saw a lot of funding going into CVE space. And you know, once again, I think my, my views are in transition on, on this, but hence why I kind of struggle with it a little bit. But I think that if we see tertiary studies uh, uh, as inclusive of violent extremism, at least, then the security risk hasn't changed and it shouldn't be re-evaluated. Um, and that, that is reflective in terms of academia and, and in terms of policy as well and, and in funding, which is a set, well, I think I was about to say, which we've seen extensive funding for that. Whether that funding is wasted money or not, yeah, that's a different matter. But yeah, but that is still a big priority, and I think that's the way yeah, it should be a priority. Because violent extremism is something additional to terrorism. We're seeing that as a threat. It's not necessarily just like single attacks. It's a wider threat in terms of the state and state values as well. Yeah, democratic values, liberal values that we're seeing now in Europe and in the US as well. Great. Thank you both for that the kind of multiple kind of interesting conversations within there. So to follow up on kind of a few of the conversations that we've had already, one potential challenge for counterviolent extremism, for counter-radicalization, is what happens where you see the blurring of the boundaries between more kind of mainstream political discourses and then those of extremist movements, however defined. So I think Sean McDade noted this particularly in relation to blurring of the boundaries between mainstream conservative discourses and those of the radical or far right. But we could envision this being a problem more widely. How does counterviolent extremism, counter-radicalization deal with the challenge of that blurring between more mainstream political discourses and then extremist discourses? And what are the potential kind of difficulties around that? I don't have expertise much on uh, our right, but briefly what I can say, it is critically important to understand who are the target in CV interventions, basically. It's a general population or it's at-risk population. So if you consider in terms of far right, there might be people who are prone to right-wing political parties. Okay, but those who are not prone to right-wing political parties, they might see that these are not mainstream political ideas in, in the West. So in that case, the government should think or the CV strategist should think about the target audience, whether they are targeting solely far-right extremists or they are targeting people who are having right-wing political views. So there is a blurring line over there, I understand. There's two ways to see this, I guess. One way, and I don't know if it makes sense, but... I, I, I think a, a trick that we're kind of missing, or maybe people it's so obvious people have just already acknowledged it, it's not necessarily it's just like blurring, it's that, that what we've had is a mainstreaming of radical views, that the society has become radicalised. That, that, I mean, I think this is just with age, that, and you think in the, the UK, you can think back to kind of TV shows and political discourse, etc., 
that, that if you had something that was said now by a mainstream politician, yeah, that that would be something that you know, the far right was saying. So, I mean, and I guess on the one hand, has that blurring already happened there? That it's not necessarily blurred anymore, it's just mainstreamed. But I think, once again, I'm trying to kind of feel for what we're kind of talking about and linking this to CVE. I, I think then other issues, when it's blurring it between, you know, the mainstream and in the far right here, that this is kind of reminiscent of the not violent, non violent debate, conveyor belt thesis that you had with Islamists, your mainstream Islamists, and, and then you had jihadis, your, your kind of even more radical engaging in violence uh, uh, Islamists. But you had that debate there, and obviously there was problems with that. And I think that in that debate, my thinking was that this conveyor belt thesis not, was. was it was nonsense in a way, and, and to, to coin a, a CTS phrase, it was problematic. And, and in the sense that we needed to create that, you need to create that space for uh, uh, Islamist uh, uh, political views. Uh, and I'm not talking about in the UK, maybe a political in the UK, but when I'm talking about this, I'm more thinking about uh, Egypt and, uh, and, and Palestine and, and, and so forth, where I've had some of that experience. And, and so the way to do it there was to focus uh, on, on terrorism. And this is what Anthony Richards' whole point was. And, uh, but that argument there, he, he said, okay, how do we get over this problem, this conveyor belt thesis? Because we know the problems it leads to. We know that those blurs are problems. We know those blurs are problems. But if we can have just jump in wholesale and see conservative right wing as the same as the far right, then, then that, that kind of creates the same problems or similar problems that we had in terms of the Islamist context. And, and so I was opposed to that kind of conveyor belt thesis there. And I feel it's like consistent to kind of, you know, be here as well in, in, in terms of CVE and counterterrorism. I mean, if we want to criticise conservatives for saying racist things, I think that that's good, that's fine. But that's a different debate to saying, OK, this is the part of CVE and counterterrorism. And so I, I, I think this is why anchoring it within violent extremism, not extremism, violent extremism, and terrorism uh, is, is important because it, it, that creates those boundaries for having these conversations. Um, that and, and yeah, I know, I can already hear prevent people in my head saying, ah, but there is sometimes that can bear belt faces, right? And yeah, okay, and I guess I get that on a practical level. You can see someone who's at the edges saying something that, that is within the mainstream, but a little bit dodgy, and then it encourages someone else to radicalise. I, I, I see that and I get that. And we know that in terms of the Islamist debate. I'm guessing that uh, we, we don't know that or we don't really consider that as much with the, the, the far right debate. So I think that's something. But thinking at that practical level, going back to the CVE point, how do we deal with that? I think that if you were to ask prevent people, they would be saying, well, or prevent like people, CVE people, they would be saying, well, this is why ideology is not the only risk factor we look at. That actually, ideology, I don't think that is, is, is often, ideology is just kind of the thing to kind of red flag a little bit, but when, when someone who's triaging that within a CV space, they're looking at other things, perfective factor, vulnerability factors, so on and so forth, which may kind of compensate and, and give some security with dealing with that blurred area. Once again, that's a big, long answer. A really fascinating question, important point. I don't know, essentially, is the, the short answer. But hopefully I've given some points that may be interesting to people. Thank you for that. I think as you were alluding to, what was important was that this is a general problem, this potential blurring between more mainstream political discourses and then 
what you might see as more extremist discourses with the far right as particular instantiation of that rather than being the sole instance of that and obviously depending on different contexts and and personally I agree in terms of the prioritization of violence as opposed to specifically kind of ideology in terms of determining those boundaries. Moving on into the discussion, we wanted to add that our bonus episode will be coming up where we actually delve a little bit more on my research and the research done by Harry and we discuss the political discourse uh, within the UK and the French context. And something we came across with is this distinction in political language in defining and framing the enemy or the terrorist other. So to reflect on that, Dida, I was wondering if this construction of suspect communities was something that you analyzed within the Bangladeshi context, within the discourse. And is there therefore similarities as such with Western discourse, let's say, or not? In Bangladesh context, it's it's a bit uh, different and certainly it's different. Bangladesh, you know, is a Muslim majority, but constitutionally, it's a secular democracy as well. In Bangladesh, more than 90% people, they are Muslims. And it's quite impossible for the policymakers to frame a large number of people as a suspect community. So the uh, customary idea of suspect community cannot be relevant in Bangladesh in current times. But there is always a but. But there was a time when people or even the policymakers, practitioners, they used to frame that madrasa, that means religious schools, madrasa background students, they become violent extremists. Or poor people, they become violent extremists more than any anyone. But in post-2016 discourse, you see, this discourse has been shifted. And not only from poor background, not only from madrasa background, there is a new discourse that English medium background students, they sometimes prone to radical ideas, after analyzing some profiles, uh, there are some key studies from Ali Riaz, Mustafa, or even Simon Parvez that they are sh- demonstrating that more people from affluent families, they are becoming extremists. So 10 years back, the customary idea that marginalized people in terms of poverty, unemployment, they were becoming extremists. Now that has been shifted. But as a general, the making of at-risk population is not compatible to UK. So we can discard uh, or it's not conclusive, but I can understand in Bangladesh, Muslims are in general uh, are not marginalized in the sense of making at-risk population. Uh, in Bangladesh, police officials, they have been using some sort of techniques. They are not sharing with us. It's, I would say, their secret techniques or with their intelligence they try to figure out who are the at-risk people who are sharing, for example, some uh, similar message of IS or Al-Qaeda in Indian subcontinent. They're uh, sharing this message to Facebook. So what Bangladesh police does right currently, they are not arresting them. Instead, they are reaching to their families and trying to sit with them with some other fellows because in local areas, there is a hierarchy of society. So they try to connect those people with them to bring them back in 
normal life. Otherwise, the police officials understand there is a huge risk that these people might turn in a weaponized way. And that means they might turn as violent extremists. So in Bangladesh, in general, first of all, there is no generalization of at-risk population. At-risk population is very customized uh, according to Bangladesh police officials. And they try to address those both by interception and uh, by advocacy and persuasion, etc. One official, police official, he's a senior police official from Bangladesh. He said to me that, for example, you are arresting someone as a suspect terrorist. So if he's not a real terrorist, then every relative, their, their friends, peers, and the community will turn up against even the regime, against the regime. So there is a specific police unit, CTTC. They are working on it and they're trying to make sure that uh, they can reduce the chances of any marginalization or unwanted arrest, etc. So to counter all those things, they are incorporating more soft interventions and they are aware of the fact that if the term of human rights violation escalates, you know, United States banned few police officials from Bangladesh to visit over there on this church, Rapid Action Battalion. So apart from that, Bangladesh is consciously uh, trying to avoid all those jargons and trying to bring CV as a viable option, soft intervention, not basically on uh, shoot-to-kill policy. Thank you. Dida, following on from um, what you've just set out, is there anything else that you would like to tell us about your thesis and how it ties into some of the current debates in terrorism studies? Well, my thesis basically understands how a state, that means a state from a conflated political perspective, secular uh, democracy or Muslim majority, they're framing CV policy as a late receiving country because Bangladesh has initiated CV very late. So how they're framing so yeah, the perspective I'm using, I'm using public policy perspective. Academic research is very scant on bridging public policy and uh, CV studies. So my contribution will be bringing CV studies into the realm of public policy discourse because uh, other than Thomas Reynard and Matthew Crenshaw, no, that there are not many published books or articles on that issues. So my contribution will be bridging these two fields and certainly with the case study from Bangladesh that I have been using. And specifically, I'm looking at how the Bangladeshi police officials or policymakers in general, they're framing the causes of violent extremism and how they're understanding what works in Bangladesh context and how those are getting implemented in, in field and apart from my this thesis, I've been uh, lucky enough to work with Gordon on the role of farmers in CV. It's upcoming our co-edited book. And another editor is Ryan Scrivens from Michigan State. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to be a part of Gordon's project. I just had one follow-up question. Did I just wanted to ask you, did fieldwork in Bangladesh, right, right, for your thesis? Can you just, like, maybe... Describe a little bit on what you've done and how was it? When I have been in Bangladesh, it was a bit tricky time because COVID was there. So I could interview uh, only nearly half of my 
targeted individuals. I could interview police officials because police officials in Bangladesh, they have a project with Dhaka University on framing CV. They're officially working on this project. So using my professional network back home, I could access some police officials and I interviewed some academics of those who were part uh, of that framing process, those who worked directly on this uh, policy framing. The thing is, uh, it was really difficult to reach civil servants, that means bureaucrats. It was, it was really difficult because uh, the field officials, they work regularly so they can speak on that. The civil servants, police officials are civil servants as well, but the bureaucrats in the secretariat, they were not confident enough to speak on such issues because there is a security risk over there. But apart from that, I got assistance from police, my fellow academics over there. And for example, I have been to the anti-terrorism unit to interview the head of research. She arranged four interviews for me. She's a senior police official in the anti-terrorism unit. And one thing that was striking that... Police officials, they were very helpful and cordial in doing research because they claim they have contacted 30 research so far on terrorism. Most of them are for them and uh, few of them are publishing journal articles with academics. Recently, one of the uh, police officials have published uh, a very important article on uh, terrorism, counterterrorism nexus. So my experience uh, back home was really good, really good in terms of interviewing police and academics, but still due to COVID restrictions, I couldn't meet up my target. Thank you, Dida. Thank you for specifying who you interviewed. Yeah, that's really kind of impressive given all the issues around coronavirus at the time. Just uh, last question for you, Dida, was just where can people find your work if they want to follow up on some of the things that you've been talking about today? Where's the best place to find you and your work? Well, certainly Google Scholar is a common place. I think people can go through that in in, in near future because when I will be publishing after my thesis. Or maybe in your police website. Yeah. Oh. Thank you for that. Now, turning to you, Gordon, in terms of uh, talking about some of your research, what aspects of your recent research are you most proud of and how do you think that they speak to some of the current debates within terrorism studies and some of the debates that we've had today? So what am I proud of? I mean, I, I'm just so, I don't know, I've got low self-esteem, so I'm not proud of anything. <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, no, so I, I've recently turned to the dark side and gone down a quant method rabbit hole, which I'm enjoying. It's very challenging. And I'm really proud of that, actually, because I mean, I've always done, I guess, qualitative work or, or, or theory. Uh, uh, the recent book was it's right here, Cell and Deradicalization. I mean, I kind of forgot that's out. It's because I've just kind of moved on to these uh, other topics. And so I'm kind of proud of that in the sense that I've, I think it's really exciting. It's, it's difficult, it's challenging. I mean, obviously, there's kind of a lot of questions coming because if you're coming from a qualitative background, kind of doing a little bit of work in CTS and then making that, that kind of transition, so to speak, you kind of have to justify it. And, but anyway, so what I'm doing is the, is using experimental surveys. Uh, and the, the one I'm doing is with um, Yoshi Graham. Yoshi's at, at Leeds Graham's at York and May Beth Altair. And we're going to be, well, we've written it and uh, presented it. It's looking at uh, 
uh, reintegration of terrorist offenders. And uh, so I've already written about people's attitudes to, to reintegration of terrorist offenders. What we're doing in this paper is to look at is how can you shift people's behavioural support? Uh, behavioural support is important because it's okay to say, do you support re- people uh, returning to the community? But for reintegration to be successful, you need to develop pro-social ties. And uh, pro-social ties require public support uh, or community support. Um, are you going to invite someone to, to some social activities or are you going to exclude them? Are you going to uh, stigmatise them? The sort of behaviours that are important. And, and what we wanted to look at was if people are in our de-radicalisation programme, does that have a, a positive effect on behavioural support? And, and what we've showed that it does, that, that if you just tell someone that they've been in rehabilitation, people are more likely to invite them for drinks for a social activity they're more likely to invite a terrorist around i mean that's pretty cool i mean these are kind of small effects but nevertheless what is significant and it's interesting but what it shows is that there are ways to engage with communities to nudge their uh, their attitudes and their behavior that that can help develop pro-social ties and reintegrate terrorist offenders and I think the important point here is the reintegration of terrorist offenders isn't in rehabilitation, isn't just for themselves and it's a nice thing to do, but I think it is, but isn't for just for that. It is in the belief that if you develop these pro-social ties, you reduce the risk of reoffending. That increases safety and security for, for everyone. Um, and I think that's a narrative that's very effective also, increasing support. So, yeah, looking at reintegration of terrorist offenders, the next one we're looking at is uh, transparency. Now, the assumption is that if CVE programs like, let's say, Prevent, everyone knows it, and, and probably most people who know about Prevent hate it, and most people who don't know about Prevent don't hate it, they like it, right? But most people who know about Prevent will hate it, so it's very uh, kind of interesting what to talk about. The assumption is that if you're more transparent with the public, that, that people will support and trust and that's important because you need to develop that community trust in these programs for referral, for legitimacy, for all these other things, reduce opposition, right? So community trust and support is obviously important. It's not just in prevent. It's not just in government space. We see this in America with uh, NGOs that work in CV space talking about they need to develop community support, especially among Muslims in the American context. So this assumption is an interesting one because transparency should have that effect, actually. If you look at the theory, transparency is the opposite effect. If you are more transparent about policies that involve matters like this, that you'll decrease trust or have no effect in, in Western countries, but in non-Western countries, you'll decrease trust and decrease support. And it's an interest in what that difference is between Western and non-Western countries, but the theory shows that that is. So what we're looking at, and I'm waiting for the data with bated breath because it'll probably come back saying nothing, but waiting for that data to come and we'll see. That would be great, because basically that would be like, I mean, transparency is important, obviously, beyond whether it builds community support. But if we're going to basically say, look, if you increase transparency in this way, it will increase trust. Do that. But this type of transparency won't work. So that would be great, to see, but we'll see what comes out there. And very, very lastly, the work me and Didar, that's our project, mate, that that's a former, that's a great edited collection, bringing practitioners, everyone, a world of knowledge together. And me and uh, Daniel Kohler are, are also going to be doing a little bit on uh, another survey experiment looking at credibility 
are good formers have credit are, are they credible? Providing some evidence evidence for that, and it seems like no, they're not. That's 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 <laughs> early stages. We'll see, but yeah, I don't know if it's significant. Yeah, but I looked at it. It doesn't seem like they make a difference. Police are more uh, credible, which is interesting. You assume it's opposite, but it's not. Anyway, that is it. Thank you very much. And so that's what I'm proud of, that I've done something that's completely different from whatever I've done. Very challenging. No qualifications in maths. So that's why I'm proud of that, I think. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Best of luck with your journey into, as you say, the dark side. <laughs> Lastly, where is the best place for people to follow you and find your work if they want to follow up on some of the research that you've just laid out for us? Google Scholar as well, yeah. But I'm happy to share and talk. So invite me. That's for your audience. If you're in a, a nice sunny location in the south of Italy, invite me. That's the best way to hear about my research. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll get some follow-ups from that. Okay, great. Well, thank you both for coming. That was really fantastic. A couple of yeah. really interesting, different cross-cutting conversations there. Thank you again for joining. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah. Yeah, likewise, thanks for having us. Likewise, thank you so much, everyone. Thanks so much, Gordon and Dido, for this fascinating discussion we just had. As I mentioned at some point during this episode, we will release a bonus episode in which Harry and I discuss our research as we are both ECR and PGR. I will be discussing my research on French counterterrorism and the application of emergency power as a colonial legacy. Also, my forthcoming book chapter entitled Our French Counterterrorism Strategy, A Colonial Legacy and What Remains from the Colonial Matrix When Constructing and Responding to the Threat of Terrorism in an edited book coming up at the end of 2022. Harry will be discussing his research, both his thesis, which focused on an analysis of the Islamic style strategic narratives of sovereignty and political legitimacy, constructed through English language propaganda content and his new article recently published in Critical Studies on Terrorism, followed by a discussion between us on the differences and similarities within the French and the UK political discourse in depicting the enemy. So stay tuned and keep an eye on your podcast apps. We would like to thank you both for taking part in this episode and thank all of you who are listening to our podcast, especially those that sent in questions. We would also like to thank our assistant producer, Irene Groenland. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all major podcast apps to get future episodes directly into your feed and take a look at the Centre for Global Security Challenges to find further cutting-edge research on today's topic. If you enjoyed this episode, then please remember to leave us a rating and review. Stay tuned. Our next episode will be coming out next month. Thanks for listening and join us next time on Insecure, a security podcast. But until then, stay safe, stay secure. Bye for now. It was Harry and Marin for the CGSC podcast. Insecure. A security podcast. <laughs> <laughs>